Uh, If you have your Bibles, please turn to Ezekiel chapter 4. And happy to say Daniel Gaiman will be uh, teaching us today. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. If you're flipping through those big fat books of the Old Testament, that's where it is. Right before Daniel, good morning, everyone. Um, I'm thrilled to be here. Um, I, would, I would debated whether to make this joke or not, and I'm going to, because there's no, nothing after I say after this will be funny. Um, so uh, in the process here at Grace is of being considered for an elder, they say, here, Daniel, one of the tests you get is, how about some Old Testament apocalyptic prophetic teaching? And I go, okay, bring it, great. So, if you were with me uh, in Ezekiel 4, I want to leap straight into the text because I wish I could edit some of it out, but I don't think that's going to happen too much. Um, So, you know, uh, David set us up for this last week. We left Ezekiel. um, I'm going to say we left him outstanding in his field, uh, which the last thing God does is sends him out to the plain where he reveals his glory to him again. Can I have that first slide, Bruce? And you remember the image of that, this, this almost indescribable image of the, the living creatures and things around fire and this molten steel, and it's overwhelming. So he, after he saw that vision, he laid down overwhelmed for seven days. And then God sent him out into the plain um, and said, and I'm just going to uh, read a little bit of chapter 3. And starting in verse 22, the hand of the Lord was upon me there, And he said to me, get up and go out to the plain, and there I will speak to you. So he got out, and he went, he saw the glory again, and he fell down, as that's what you do when you see the glory of the Lord. Then the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet. He spoke to me and said, go shut yourself inside your house. And you, son of man, they will tie with ropes. You will be bound so that you cannot go out among the people. I will make your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth so that you will be silent and unable to rebuke them, though they are a rebellious house. But... When I speak to you, I will open your mouth, and you shall say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Just, okay, so um, first instruction, he's out in the plain, then he goes into his house. And God says, I'm going to, you will be bound. He says, they will bind you. Somehow he's bound. Uh, It's probably metaphorical that somehow he's just stuck there until God says, go. I'm going to give you the word, and then you go. And this is the nature of Ezekiel's relationship with God. So he's in his house bound, silent, and God comes and gives him a series of exercises that he's going to perform um, essentially in public. Now remember, the Jews to whom Ezekiel, who incidentally was training to be a priest, right? So he'd been to rabbinical school and he probably had the Torah memorized. So he really has access to all of the five books of the law, all of the Mosaic law, everything about the temple and its worship and sacrifices was in his head. He knew all this. You'll see it come out as he talks about things. Um, but God gives him this series of things to do, and they're all essentially street theater. And uh, I, there are four of them. One is a siege against the modeled city. The next one is bearing the sin of the people. Then we have food and water rationed and unclean. And then we have shaving a haircut, five cents. But I will get to that point in a moment. Um, okay, so now here's what these things, I'm just going to go through them really quickly. I probably won't read every word. I'll sort of loosely interpret them for you. Can I have the next one, Bruce? So... This is Jerusalem. Uh, the shiny gold thing in the middle is the, the uh, is, uh, Muslim mosque that sits on the Dome of the Rock, the part where the Holy of Holies and the temple used to sit until Jerusalem was destroyed and then destroyed again hundred, many, many, many times. 
So let me have the next one. This is a model of the city of Jerusalem, which is also in Jerusalem. When God says to Ezekiel, I want you to sit down. Now remember, they, the Jews had been taken captive from Israel, and they were now some of them in, in captive in Babylon. And the ones that they had taken, generally speaking, were the highest educated, wealthiest, most powerful, got taken first. And the sort of poorer, simpler, blue-collar folks got left behind until the final captivity. So that's just kind of how that was working. So they weren't in Jerusalem anymore. So that's why God tells them, I want you to take this clay roof tile and sort of sketch a map of the city of Jerusalem on it and then put it down in the street. Oh, incidentally, it occurs to me that at this point, God had told him to leave his house. Uh, the, the text doesn't tell us that, but I'm going to make that assumption because I believe these theatrical events that he's going to do occur in a public square, someplace where you would expect to find a crazy saying crazy things or doing crazy things, right? So um, uh, that's what he's doing. Builds the model like that, only a lot smaller. His was about the size of one of these carpet tiles, about a foot by two feet. Draws out the city from memory on it, right? He was pretending to be a priest. He knew how to draw the temple. And then God says, build siege works, battering rams, uh, encampments. Can I have the next one, Bruce? This is not a great slide, but this is Masada. This is the view from Masada back down into the valley. And you can see that squarish thing to the left of the slide, and then another one right in the middle. That is where the enemy camped, and they would build camps, and they would literally build a freeway on-ramp up to wherever the city was until they could roll in with all the gear and take it over. So Ezekiel models that. Then God says... Uh, okay, now get, a, now get a griddle, get an iron frying pan, and put it down in front of the city, okay? And then he says, now, I want you to take that. So that's essentially what's happening with the model. It shows this is what's going to happen to Jerusalem. It's pretty literal. And then God says, I want you to uh, lay down on your side and bear the sin of the house of Israel on your side, okay? So, what that actually meant in context of what he was doing is unclear, but it reminds us of a couple of other things. The one thing it reminds us of is in Old Testament worship, with which he would have been very familiar, there was a thing called a scapegoat. And the goat came up, and the priests and the elders laid their hands on the head of the goat, and that symbolically transferred their sins onto this goat, and then they released him into the wilderness. And he, he bore away the sin of Israel into the wilderness, right? Of course, something else should pop into your head when you think of bearing the sins of the people, and that would be, thank you very much, Jesus bore our sin, bore it on his body on the cross. So this is a very, very oblique but early reference to that. Nevertheless, don't know exactly what it means, but he's going to do this 390 days for Israel and 40 days for Judah. I'm taking this as literal. Um, I, you, if we can, we have a wonky coffee discussion later to talk about why that number of years, but I'm going to just go roll by that. As he does that, God says, alternatively, I'm going to bind you with ropes when you do that. So you can't turn from one side to the other, i.e. this is not your determination to make. It's mine. And I'm going to continue to do it. And oh, by the way, when you're laying on your side, bound in ropes in the middle of the public square, staring at a model of Jerusalem, you got to eat. So here's what I'm going to have you do. Take these grains and legumes, and you're going to make them into a barley cake, a set amount, and you're going to eat it every day, paste it out over the course of the day, and you have a little bit of water to drink, paste it out over the course of the day. God puts Ezekiel on a, on a near-starvation diet. That's about the equivalent of two bagels and three cups of water a day, right? 
that sort of measured out over the time. So there he is. He's laying on his side. He's bearing the sins of the country. And God says, okay, it's not bad enough, and I'm going to put you on a near-starvation diet. I'm going to make you defile what you eat. You bake that bread over human excrement. Yes, you should be appalled by that. It's a disgusting, it's a disgusting visual. It's a disgusting thought. And it's so disgusting, this is prompts the only words you hear out of Ezekiel in the first half of the book. There's a lot of narrative that he writes. This is when he first, this prompts him to talk. And he says, not so, Lord. I was raised as a priest. Right? I understand unclean. I've never put anything unclean in my mouth. It's a testimony to Ezekiel's passion for righteousness because he understands the holiness of God. And God relents. He says, fine, you can cook it over manure. All right, so we'll settle for that. Um, And he moves on for there. So the timeline is 14 months. So he's 14 months, near starvation diet, eating kind of cheap bread that uh, he bakes over manure, which presumably he had to gather himself. How he does that when he's tied up and lying on his side, I don't know for sure. So not all the details completely mesh here, but you get the thrust of things. Okay, the idea of cooking the food over human waste suggests that it would be, in fact, unclean. And I'm not going to give you every cross-reference in the scripture, but the Bible tells you in Leviticus what you're supposed to do if you take a dump in the woods. Sorry, I don't want to clean it up, but that's, it does, right? In order to, why? In order to maintain the cleanness of the camp. This is what you do. Health and hygiene restrictions in Leviticus, right? Um, so we we're very aware of these things. The idea when they are in captivity and don't have access to the temple where sacrifices would be made of their first fruits and of their firstborn, that made what they ate clean. God is telling them, I will take you away where you don't even have the access to being clean. So that's what that symbolizes. I think that's most of four. Um, God explains it a little bit. As he gets down to the end, I'm in verse 16 of chapter 4. He said to me, son of man, I will cut off the supply of food in Jerusalem, which is what happens when an enemy uh, creates siege works around, they starve you out, is basically what happens. The people will eat rationed food in anxiety and drink rationed water in despair, for food and water will be scarce. They will be appalled at the sight of each other and will waste away because of their sin. So in Ezekiel's experience, He's going to end up looking. He's got, he's, he goes on a 700-calorie-a-day diet for 14 months, right? At the end of that period, he was looking messy. He just, you know, sorry, I have to do it. Picture the images you've seen of prisoners released from Auschwitz. That's what he looked like, okay? Now, before engaging in the 14 months, the timeline here is not completely completely uh, clear to me, but God comes and says another thing. He says, Take a saber. Let me take a saber. Where's JJ? Okay, JJ, stand up for a second. I just want you to observe. This is a hirsute gentleman in our church. He's, he's got a mess of facial hair and hair on his head, right? And so he's the best sort of um, parallel I could find to what a Jewish priest might have looked like. <laughs> Thanks, JJ. Okay, now, JJ, picture this, right? You've been to Floyd's and had a shave maybe once or twice. And so what God tells Ezekiel uh, is um, everything else he's going to do. He says, take a saber, and I'm picturing machete. He says, shave your head and beard with a machete. 
all right? It's the inappropriate tool for the process, suggesting that the tool has a lot of power to do this. It's going to be a mess. So he does this, and he goes through this exercise. I think it's before he lays down at the 14 months, and he bundles up all that hair. When do you see the quantity of hair? So it's not a little wispy thing, right? So it's, it's a pile. And he kind of hangs on to that, in my estimation, for the 14 months of laying against the city, right? And then he says, okay, so when you get to the end of that 14 months, here's what I want you to do. Take a third of it and burn it in the city. A third of the hair, burn it in the city. I take that to mean inside the model of the city of Jerusalem that he built, okay? Part of the street theater. So he does that. Take the next third and uh, basically throw it up and start hacking at it like a maniac, doing this bizarre kind of whirling dervish dance around the model of the city, like that. Um, This is crazy stuff, okay? God wrote this, by the way. Um, (laughs) Do that, and then take a third of it and cast it to the winds. But of that third that you cast to the winds, take a few of those and tuck them into your garment, right? If you don't know what that is, that's the remnant, because God spends a lot of the Old Testament really upset and, and threatening to destroy his own people. But in every instance, there's a remnant that he saves. In this case, these hairs represent the remnant. They go into the folds of his garment for safekeeping, except even a few of those. Pull out a few of those and cast those into the fire. Even among the remnant, not everybody graduates. <sighs> okay. So that's the street theater that Ezekiel is going through. At the end of the 14 months, his beard and stuff has probably grown back. He's gaunt, and he looks like a refugee. And at that point, um, I'm not sure where it is, but God begins to come in and explain the situation. Maybe he explained this to him before he did it. The logistics are not that critical. But here's where I want to go back and kind of read this, read a lot of this to you from the Word. I'm in chapter 5, starting in about verse 5. Now, I want you to notice a couple things before we go in here. Just make a little check mark, you know, a notch in your belt or something. Every time you hear something that sounds like, this is what the sovereign Lord says, or they will know that I have spoken, or I, indeed I, myself, me, have spoken, right? The emphasis is, this is the God. Not the gods of the people around you. This is the God, the creator of the universe God, speaking to you. Okay, in chapter 5, verse 5, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. This is Jerusalem, okay? That wasn't already apparent from the model and so on. Which I have set in the center of the nations with countries all around her. Yet in her wickedness, she has rebelled against my laws and decrees more than the nations and countries around her. She has rejected my laws and has not followed my decrees. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. You have been more unruly than the nations around you and have not followed my decrees or kept my laws. That's decrees and laws three times in like four sentences. You have not even conformed to the standards of the nations around you. That is particularly insulting. Okay? So, just as you know, very quickly, the, the nature of the, is the Hebrew nation God starts with Abraham, calls him out of Ur the Chaldees, reveals himself personally to him, right? Every, they, most cultures of the world at that time practiced some sort of worship. Most of them were idols. They invented things. They made them out of wood and stone and gold and silver. When David carries on in the book, you'll see that Ezekiel comes out and wails against a lot of that. But this is the God, reveals himself to Abraham, goes on through many generations, has 
uh, Israel, Jacob has 12 sons. They end up coming, going down to Egypt. They're taken out of Egypt. God slowly built a nation, right? A nation. Now, not a huge nation. I mean, a million and a half of them leave Egypt and go out into the desert. And they go through. But in that process, the thing to remember is that God revealed himself. This is the God, the maker of the universe, revealed himself to this group of people. Okay? And then he said, in revealing himself to them, distinguishing them from the nations who worshipped idols, he said, this is how we're going to make this work. Okay? I'm going to choose you, and you're going to behave like this. Right? And just to help you out, I'm going to give you laws and decrees. I'm going to tell you how to do it. I'm going to lay it out for you. This is what you do. And he gave them the, the law. And that's what the law became. Right? So they had a system of sacrifices and things that kept them in a covenant relationship with God. And I will tell you, if you read in Leviticus, there's a whole lot of if-then statements in the book of Leviticus. If you keep my decrees and laws, I will bless you and prosper you, and you'll have lots of children and lots of cattle. You'll be very rich. You'll be happy in your pastoral existence out there in Palestine. But if you turn away from me and you don't, and then there's this laundry list of things he's going to do right? That's twice as long as the list of things he's going to do if they keep his commands and decrees. God sets up a covenant relationship with his people in which if you do this, I will do this, okay? And the problem is they just can't do it. They have little periods, you know, where, where they have, they get a good king like Josiah and it kind of straighten things out. But if you remember, Dave last week showed a chart of the ups and downs of the kingdom of Israel, basically. He talked about the golden age. The golden age was about, was right with Solomon, they built the temple, they dedicate the temple, the glory of God fills the temple, similar vision to what Ezekiel saw hundreds of years earlier, right? That was the zenith of the Hebrew nation, okay? Solomon, who dedicated the temple, already went off the tracks even before his reign was over, Right? His son was a complete Nimrod who ended up splitting the nation and Israel goes off this way, Judah stays here, and it's all a slow, grinding, miserable slide into dissipation for hundreds of years until they get taken away into Babylon, okay? Now, why am I telling you all that? Well, the, uh, it is important to understand that when God gives a covenant... And, you, and we disobey the covenant, then it makes him very, very angry, right? And it's his, I gave you this covenant, and look how many times he says that. You, can't, you didn't keep my laws and decrees. You are incapable of keeping my laws and decrees. Oh, incidentally, if you're trying to figure out the title of the sermon, somebody asked, implacable is a word that means cannot be satisfied, and incorrigible means cannot be tamed. So, Inherent conflict there. Somebody asked me on the way in. I thought I would, I would mention that. Okay, so when then the covenant is broken because of God's holiness, all right? And I want to impart to you, um, before I completely go off the rails, is that we do not, for the most part, comprehend the holiness of God. For the most part, from time to time, some of us more than others, and I'm including myself in that, we judge God. We judge God. If we were to understand the whole counsel of God, 
that he presents it in this awesome, marvelous, wonderful book. By the way, 10 minutes a day, you'll get through the whole thing in a year. If is, uh, Mark mentioned it, Josh mentioned it, somebody mentioned it. God revealed himself to us, right? I throw down this gauntlet right now. When someone takes you on for the contradictions and the weird messages of the Bible, are you ready to defend it? Are you ready to speak to what you believe? Are you ready to testify to the holiness of the creator of the universe? Right? How do you get there? How do you get to that place? How will you take those risks? How will you put yourself at odds with loved ones or people around you or people who contribute to your living and say these things that you believe? Well, I'll come back to that in a minute. The difficult part, now we go in. I've been resisting going into the next part, but now we're going to go. Now God is going to speak from an emotional perspective, I want to say. Remember, the writer is putting it into terms that we can comprehend. Uh, I'm going to go back to verse 8. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself am against you, Jerusalem, and I will inflict punishment on you in the sight of the nations because of all your detestable idols. I will do to you what I have never done before and will never do again. Therefore, in your midst, fathers will eat their children and children will eat their fathers. Did we dismiss the children? I hope we did. Okay. This is not, this is not story time stuff, really, without some editing. Therefore, as surely as I live, uh, sorry, um, I will inflict punishment on you. That's the second time he said that. And will scatter all your survivors to the winds. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your vile images and detestable practices, I myself will withdraw my favor. I will not look on you with pity or spare you. A third of your people will die of the plague or perish by famine inside you. A third will fall by the sword outside your walls. And a third I will scatter to the winds and pursue them with drawn sword after I've scattered them. Those are the three chunks of hair from the earlier street theater. Thirds. Then my anger will cease and my wrath against them will subside and I will be avenged. The Hebrew word for avenged there is also translated comforted. It's something to think about. And when I have spent my wrath upon them, then they will know that I, the Lord, have spoken in my zeal. Those few who manage to survive, who are not slaughtered by the enemy, who don't die of starvation or famine, those few who go off into another place and remain faithful to God, and there were some who did that, and it wasn't very many, right? They will know that I am the Lord and I have done this through my zeal. I've spoken in my zeal. And then just quickly, I will make you a ruin and a reproach among the nations around you. This is his chosen people. In the sight of all who pass by, you will be a reproach and a taunt, a warning and an object of horror to the nations around you when I inflict punishment on you in anger and in wrath and with stinging rebuke. I, the Lord, have spoken. When I shoot at you with my deadly and destructive arrows of famine, I will shoot to destroy you. I will bring more and more famine upon you and cut off your supply of food. I will send famine and wild beasts against you, and they will leave you childless. Plague and bloodshed will sweep through you, and I will bring the sword against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. This is gnarly, gnarly stuff. Okay? And I want to say, 
This type of language is difficult for us to hear. It may not match the paradigm that we have of, um, the, of some of the other attributes of God. I don't get to today spend as much time on his compassion, his slow to anger, his forgiveness, his tenderness, his love and care for his people. Read the Psalms. You'll see all of that. Today I get to talk about his wrath, right? So, and I think it's absolutely critical that we comprehend what the wrath of God is, right? He, he says, when I shoot my arrow against you, I will shoot to destroy you. It is, I will not miss. The wrath of God consumes things. Okay? Now, application. <laughs> I know, dare me, right? So, um, we know from Paul that the wrath of God rests on the sons of disobedience. Okay? Each of you, every one of you, without exception in this room, is worthy of the wrath of God. And save one very special incident that I'm going to talk about. He'd be ready to open up a can of you-know-what on you right now. Okay? That wrath, that extinguishing, chasing, crushing, so that fathers will eat their children. And by the way, you can do the scripture cross-references. There's five incidents of that in the Old Testament. God tells him in Leviticus, if you disobey me, you're going to end up eating your children. Watch me. Okay? That wrath, that almost unquenchable wrath, that is what was poured out, sorry, on Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross. God's wrath, God's murderous, rampaging, vengeful wrath against all sin of all people of all time was poured out on him in a concentrated form until it killed him. And he said in Jesus' one moment of hell, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you know the answer to that question is because I cannot Tolerate sin, and for this moment, that is what you have become. It is the ultimate one-size-fits-all solution. Now, there's an irony to this. Some of the nations around the Israelites, in their detestable practices that God talks about, they worshipped Moloch or uh, Ashtaroth or the sun and the moon or Baal or just, you know, fill in the blanks. They had lots of gods. Many, many of them practiced infanticide. They offered their newborns in the fire to appease their gods. And God said, I never told you to do that, nor did it ever enter into my mind to suggest such a heinous thing. And yet, brothers and sisters, to solve our very palpable problem. God sacrificed his own son. And all that wrath was put on him so that you and I don't have to face that penalty. Right? Okay, that's point number one. Point number two. That's where it gets really fun. Um, when we trust in Jesus, that 
The wrath that he endured on the cross covered our punishment in front of God. Then we also get filled with the Holy Spirit. And you'll notice that Ezekiel has some spirit moments. The Spirit lifted me up. The Spirit did this. The Spirit did that. It's great, right? The Spirit is a little bit harder to pin down in the Old Testament. It kind of comes and goes, you know? Um, in the New Testament, if you believe, you have the Holy Spirit, right? You have Jesus Christ living inside you. There is a covenant engaged in our relationship with Jesus, right? What is the covenant that we make with Jesus? I'll give you a hint. If you love me, keep my commandments. You know what? At the end of the day, it is not fundamentally significantly different from the covenant he made with the Hebrews. With one major exception. We are forgiven already for what we, what, I was used a bad word, for what we messed up yesterday, where you're going to mess up later today, and where you're going to mess up tomorrow, right? The, the part of the covenant that impacts us impacts one another, and as God is willing, impacts the world, is our keeping of that covenant to pursue righteousness. He's given us the Holy Spirit, which enables us to pursue righteousness, right? But we, again, not too different from the Jews, we so often have a better idea, right? Right? Uh, what is righteousness? It is not a mystery. I don't need to explain to anybody in this room what the, what the God's decretive will for you is. What are the things you should do and what are the things you should not do? I don't have to tell that to anybody. You already know. Now, getting you to do it, getting me to do it, that's another story, right? Uh, I'm going to turn over to the New Testament for one second, to Matthew chapter 5. Jesus, who uh, was kind of another prophet says something really interesting. In 5.14, he says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. And he sort of caps off this discussion that he's having about righteousness with this line. For I tell you, verse 20, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? And we could have a discussion on the patio somewhere about the, all the theological implications of that statement. I always was comforted taking it sort of abstractly to saying, well, of course, I have the righteousness of Jesus. I'm you know, covered in his righteousness. Mm, yes, that is true. But that, I don't think that's all that that means. That means an actual working it out, living it out. And now I'm going to draw the two things together. When God, in chapter 5, God says, this is Jerusalem, who I set in the center of the nations, right? <clears throat> he chose them. He, he established a nation. He gave them his law. He wanted them to be set apart for him, to be different, to be markedly, noticeably different from the people around them. And his condemnation of them says, not only could you not do what I told you to do, and you disobeyed all that, you couldn't even stoop to the standards of the idolaters around you. You became worse than them. How did they become worse than them? They defiled God to his face by bringing those detestable idols into the temple, into the sanctuary. Read your Jewish history. You'll understand what they did and why God was so upset. All right? The church is spiritual Israel. 
We are a city on a hill. In my home fellowship group, we've been going through the book of Isaiah. Another little light reading, for those of you who are interested. (laughs) Actually, um, Bruce, can I have the Bible in seven words? All right. This is the Bible in seven words. Right? God wants a holy and righteous people. All the rest of it is just detail on how he accomplishes it. Okay? That's the fundamental theme. Uh, I just completely lost my, lost my track of that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. Uh, thank you so much, David. That was just poof. Um, set apart. Does anybody know what the word sanctified means? Set apart for sacred purposes, right? Okay, so the, uh, Jerusalem is there. It's surrounded by other nations. They were supposed to be better. They enjoyed that one moment. Remember in, in Solomon, at least politically, they enjoyed a moment of, 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 of blessing from God, of world notoriety, what they were doing. Okay, in the study of Isaiah, that's where I actually was. There's, here's the book of Isaiah in three sentences. I can't do it in seven words, but here's in three sentences. Number one, the nations rage and roil like a tumbling ocean incessantly through an unending expression of my power over yours. Right? And this, why, why have so many civilizations, civilizations vanished from the face of the planet? One rises up, somebody conquers them, they decay on their own. It's just pounding surf is how the language sounds in Isaiah about how that happens. But here's what we know. The Lord himself has established Zion forever. Unshakable, right? And he, at some point, is going to provide his messenger who will turn the hearts of the people and give them a heart of flesh such that he can reestablish that kingdom and reign in it in peace forever. That's Jesus, the Messiah, of course, right? Uh, And so that's the message of Isaiah. If you read the whole book, that's basically what it's about, right? Now, it's a little bit mysterious in terms of when these things unfold exactly. Jesus came once, and he accomplished our salvation. He has not set up that kingdom yet, but that's coming, right? So we take that away, and we look at the role of the church in the world today, and you compare it to Jerusalem, right? And this is where I get brokenhearted and all messed up again. We ought to be leading. We had to lead the world in righteousness. All nations should look to the body of Jesus Christ as something to be sought after. We have not performed well. And it's hard. I get to talk about myself as an individual. I get to talk about us as a group. But this is what I want to take away is that we owe it to our relationship to Jesus, to continually examine ourselves and pursue righteousness. Because if we judge God, if we come up with a better plan, if we ignore his word because it makes us uncomfortable, what is that? That's idolatry, right? That's placing anything else in his position. And to go all the way back to the text, That makes him very, very upset. 
Now, um, a couple things I'm going to throw out before I'm done that, have to, that <clears throat> I cannot expound here. Um, forgive me in advance if I tweak your sensibilities, um, but I encourage you to talk about them afterwards, right? There is discipline occurring in the church, and God is doing it. All right? We don't always know. Sometimes we're a little close to tell. I'll use one example that you've all seen. It used to trouble me terribly. In the book of Acts, there's a story of Ananias and Sapphira. Right? And if you've struggled with that story, it's like, what? They sold some land. So they, um, they were living communally. A lot of people were selling chunks of property, bringing all the proceeds and donating them to the coffers that supported everybody in the group. Ananias and Sapphira also sell a piece of land. They come in, and they lay the money at Peter's feet, but they hold back a portion of the sales price. And Acts doesn't give us a whole lot of detail about figuring out why that spins off the tracks so bad. But here's what I expect happened. What I expect happened is they held some back, but said they gave the whole thing because they're accused of lying, right? And God strikes both of them dead in the church. That is a harrowing story. What was the issue? They were being just the kind of hypocrites that the prophets railed against Jerusalem for. You have a form of religious uh, activity, but your heart ain't in it. That's right off the bat with the church. And I won't go in, read the book of Hebrews. For every, every person, everyone that the Lord uh, loves, he disciplines and chastises as his own son, right? In the study of communion, Paul says he's, you know, we, we like to quote the communion chapter about how to do communion, but part of that explanation is Paul says, you come, you have these love feasts together, half of you show up starving, the other half get drunk. It is a shame to you. And for this reason, many of you are sick and some have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is a convenient metaphor for for died. The Holy Spirit is at work disciplining the church because he wants us to be a city on a hill that might draw all nations to us because of our righteousness that was given us by the Holy Spirit through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Oh, whew, okay. Um, <laughs> you know what? I, you, 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 go into Ezekiel. It's a tough chapter in a tough book in a group of tough books, right? God did it that way in order to inspire us to dig into it and figure it out, right? And it takes a lot of effort and commitment to do that. But that is how we come to know the sovereign Lord who has spoken. Can I have the last slide, Bruce? Okay, I'm not going to read all these. You can read them yourself. Um, I'm a big fan of reading the entire book. Um, I like to read it through, cover to cover, go back, start over, and do it again. And just keep doing that, and keep doing it. Keep going even when you don't understand it. Because eventually you will. You'll be reading along, and suddenly, poof, the Holy Spirit illumines something to your eyes that you had not seen before. So, uh, that's there. The other ones make sense. Um, and I want to say, just the end of the last one is... Uh, how many Biola alumni? We have a few, right? Okay, think biblically about everything. That's a Biola line. Um, that's my line to you all. And uh, I, I left some stuff out that I can't get to. Um, we can talk about it later over coffee or, or tea or something. Is what is God doing in the world today? It's not like God's revelation and engagement with us stopped at the end of the New Testament. So knowing him, knowing how he is, may begin to help you discern 
certain movements of God in the world today. Mark set this up beautifully. It's like we don't need to be fearful, but we can be detached a little bit and figure out what he's doing, right? Without the fundamental background of who he is, your opinion on what God is doing in the world is worthless. And we don't want to be worthless in that sense. Okay, so here we are. Read the word. Trust Jesus. Think about current events. And then I want to end with a quote on the, on the front of the bulletin, which is from Isaiah. It is about our hearts at the end of the day. Right? There's a lot of... This is very academic today. But the bottom line is your heart. Mark said, where are you right now? Look at that line in the middle of the quote. My soul yearns for you in the night. Nothing will satisfy like the presence of Jesus. And that's why I wanted to put that quote there because it was a tough material. Right? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we know that uh, for as, as much as we find presence with you, because of your grace and your mercy and the unbelievable gift of your son Jesus, we also understand how holy you are. It's a holiness that quite transcends anything that we can imagine. And you cannot tolerate sin. You cannot. People get destroyed because of it. We thank you that we, those of us who have trusted Jesus, are saved from that, but we want to understand it so that we might have compassion on those around us and find ways to engage them in a discussion of who you are. Father, we thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you, thank you for your holiness. In Christ's name, amen.